Bad Environmentalist, the podcast on how to care about the environment when you really suck at it. I'm Phoebe Lewis and I work as an environmental practitioner spending the past 10 years studying and working in the climate and environment space. And I'm joined by my dazzling co-host, Maria Stakia, who is a humanitarian worker based out of Iraq, who spends her rest and recovery periods doing podcasts with me. The I said podcasts. It sounds like it's some kind of like female health oriented <laughs> podcast. I actually think that should be a subset of podcasting that focuses specifically on the female health experience. Sure. We'll do that in season two. And, and it will be called the podcast. It will be called the podcast. Tell me, Phoebe, what are we going to talk about today? So today we're going to follow on from our first episode mm-hmm. where we looked at eco-anxiety. And one of the recommendations that Susan gave us on that is to try and find out a little bit more about the problem. The idea being that once you know a little bit more, you're better equipped to put it in its place as a challenge and know how to deal with it. It's not the whole picture, but it's part of it. So, I mean, you I often refer to you as my climate change expert friend. Mm. I do like explaining environmental issues with the undue confidence of a man explaining period pains to a menstruating woman. So, and I know you know a lot about this stuff. I don't know shit. Like I have, okay, of course, a a basic understanding of that there's something with carbon emissions, there's temperature rise, there's the polar bears and the melting ice, and uh, and that's basically, you know, and then then there's plastic. But other than that... (laughs) There are polar bears and plastic. All the problems begin with P. somehow they connect, but maybe also not. Um, (laughs) So I'm pretty excited to get a little bit of a better better idea of what we're really talking about. I think that's fair. I mean, even working in this space, sometimes I forget the extent of the problem and how the various issues tie together. And when I was a student, I remember one of the most helpful ways of kind of ordering all these ideas that I found was this concept called the planetary boundaries. Mm -hmm. And basically what it does is it's a framework that identifies nine areas, from what I understood, nine areas in which humans are changing the global environmental system. And it talks about the extent to which we're changing them and how we might be pushing them out of a zone in which they can continue to function properly. And so terrifying. Yeah, it does. But it's got a beautiful graphic. And so we can put links in the notes below about how you can access that beautiful visual. It looks like an exploding sun, which actually is also a pretty depressing concept. (laughs) But it's really helpful in terms of identifying the key things and structuring them together. And climate change is absolutely one of them. Mm. But there are a few other ones. And so this is perhaps a slightly I think this I feel this is as technical as we're going to get in this podcast, Mm -hmm. but we're going to go into a little bit of the science behind that with our expert of the day. Her name is Sarah Cornell, and she works on global sustainability science, coordinating the Stockholm Resilience Center's research on international collaborations on earth resilience. And so at the moment, that includes her coordination of the International Planetary Boundaries Research Network. So... And she's got a background in marine and atmospheric chemistry. Atmospheric chemistry. Oh my god, it sounds so sci-fi to me. I know. Cool. I feel like it's the sort of thing I was not... I felt like I was not smart enough to study at university. And <laughs> yeah. 
Maybe. Neither did I. <laughs> Good. And now we're doing podcasts. Let's listen. Welcome to the Bad Environmentalist podcast. It's our pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to this discussion. So what we'd love to do with you today is to identify major drivers of global environmental change at the moment. And so the planetary boundaries concept is incredibly useful. And we'd just like to start with if you could tell us a bit more about what the planetary boundaries framework is. Yeah, the planetary boundaries framework is actually structured around a very simple question, which is, has planet Earth today moved away from the comparatively stable conditions of the Holocene? Now, answering that simple question isn't so straightforward. So I want to just highlight a couple of things first. When we talk about the Earth system, we really mean um, we have an understanding of global change processes that depend on tightly linked and interdependent social systems and ecological or biophysical systems. So when we're talking about um, sustainability in general, we're interested in these questions where our human society meets living nature in local places and in global issues. Mm-hmm. So that's the, what the Earth system is when we, when we talk about it in the planetary boundaries framework context. But this other important idea in the framework is this Holocene baseline. Now, the Holocene is the last 10,000 years of Earth history since the last ice age. In terms of the, the history of humanity, our species, Homo sapiens, the Holocene has been a time of comparatively stable climate conditions and also of ecological conditions. And that's the time period where almost everything that we regard as human civilization has happened, like agriculture and large-scale settlements. Mm -hmm. So in the planetary boundaries framework, this state, which is relatively well-known, speaking scientifically, this Holocene state is the safe operating space for humanity. As I said, the sort of because it's been relatively stable, it's been relatively predictable, and so our human societies can plan ahead. We know when to plant crops for agriculture, for example. So the simple answer to the question I posed earlier is really simple as well. <laughs> yes, human activities have pushed Earth outside of the Holocene and now into a state where conditions are not at all so predictable, and they might even be really unstable. And so as part of this, you've identified nine different areas in which we are pushing the earth outside of that safe space. Is that correct? That's exactly right. I mean, describing the state of a whole planet is always going to be difficult. And describing the state of a living planet is really impossible. So the planetary boundaries framework and its nine processes, the boundaries that have been identified, is obviously still a partial picture. I often describe it as like the dashboard. It isn't a full description of everything in the, I hate to describe Earth as an engine, but in the kind of the motor of planet Earth. It's not a machine, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, by paying attention to these nine processes, they're, they're really strong indicators of where human activities are pushing the world out of the Holocene like state. Together, when we look at these processes, they're representing changes in the different components of the Earth system. And again, we don't want to think of Earth system as, like I've just said, it's a really a system about human and environmental processes really tightly interlinked. So even when we talk about components, we're really simplifying the story for our understanding, for our analysis, really. 
Yes. What I find interesting is that you've identified two core boundaries within that, which are climate change and biosphere integrity. And so I would like to go into the two of these in a little bit more depth, if that's okay. Yeah, that, that's so, great. Wonderful. So starting with um, climate change, let's just keep it simple. So can you tell us what causes climate change and what kind of impacts are we seeing that our listeners would recognize in the world around us? Yes. Climate change is really just a change in the very long-term and large-scale patterns of weather. And, you know, kind of one of my favorite definitions of climate is, you know, climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. <laughs> uh, and the, the changes in natural processes affect climate. So, for instance, after a major volcanic eruption, um, there's a tendency for the whole planet to cool. I mean, that's a very big volcanic eruption to have an effect on the whole planet. So we know that natural processes affect the climate. But the big reason for concern right now is that human activities are causing the climate to change. Sure. The, the planet's warming because of emissions of greenhouse gases, mostly from for, um, fossil fuel use, but also from deforestation and other kinds of land disturbance. The effects of a warmer world are exactly what you'd expect if you heat a planet up. The ice melts, so we're seeing shrinking glaciers and ice sheets. The warmer water expands, so we see sea level rises. Heat waves are much more frequent. Winters are milder generally in the, in the sort of temperate zones where we normally expect seasons to sort of have hot summers and cold winters. And all of the kind of, in, in effect, all of these heat-related processes are much more intense. Right. And so it seems that uh, the safe operating space for climate change would be to not have a concentration of uh, CO2 equivalent in the atmosphere that is greater than 350 parts per million. So when the, the 350 parts per million, that the sort of the, the safe operating space boundary in the planetary boundaries framework is really reflecting the variability that we've seen in the Holocene period. When we look back over longer times of climate change, you know, kind of from the ice ages to the warmer periods like the one we're in now, in ice ages, the concentrations of CO2 are about half what they are or less now, sort of about 180 parts per million. And then in the warm periods before this one, they've been at around 280, 300. And so when we say 350, that's the, the sort of the biggest range of variability that we've seen really in the Holocene. Right. I mean, in, in, in ballpark figures. So mm -hmm. the minute we're outside 350, and many people would argue even less than that, actually, mm -hmm. we're stepping out of the, the Holocene-like state. We're stepping out of the safe operating space. Right. And since we're now at 411 parts yes. per million, we're, we seem we're to be outside of that. We're in the wrong direction and we're going fast, which is, you know, kind of, if we really were controlling the planet like a, like a machine, we'd be, you know, most people would regard that as rather stupid behavior. So... <laughs> And I think, you know, that the, um, I mean, the other thing, too, is, of course, the ecological and the physical effects have impacts on our societies, too. So, I mean, here in, in Sweden, where I, I live at the moment, wildfires have become much more frequent. And so barbecue bans are more frequent, too. So, again, there's sort of right. you know, kind of social consequences. I'm being trivial about it a little bit. But I mean, on a bigger scale, droughts are more frequent. Yeah. And all the consequences of water shortages come through as well. So the those social impacts are also going to increase the more CO2 we put into the atmosphere. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And so let's then uh, transition into the second core boundary, which is the biosphere integrity. So can you tell us what, what this is and 
any kind and the causes and impacts that we might be seeing around us. <laughs> All right. I'm not a biologist, so I'm going to give really, really simple explanations here. I'm much more comfortable talking about biophys- uh, sort of the geophysical and, and, and big scale climatic storyline. But anyway, that's absolutely um, fine. <laughs> the, the biodiversity integrity boundary is really just sort of saying, how do we maintain the livingness of planet Earth? And we've got, I mean, the, the, the ecological community and the biodiversity community, the researchers have been discussing a lot about this because people haven't been thinking about the planetary ecosystem in this way, in the same way that we've been thinking about the planetary processes of climate change. So this is an area where the science is evolving around us and we're discussing it very actively at the moment. But one of the, the, the sort of control variables for our, our biodiversity boundary is genetic diversity. And that really simply is just the whole range of genetic characteristics that there is in life on Earth. And the huge diversity we've got now comes from Earth's long evolutionary history. And I mean, kind of this is why it's so fun talking to macro ecologists, the kind of people that we're trying to connect with when we're talking about the planetary boundaries framework. So when you lose genetic diversity, in other words, when a population shrinks of of any kind of organism, then you're shrinking that species ability to be able to respond to changing conditions. Mm-hmm. So when we, in the first round of the planetary boundaries framework in 2009, we used, I wasn't part of that paper, but our colleagues used the, the measure of extinctions, species extinctions over time. So an extinction pretty much means that genes are lost for good from the, from the planetary gene pool. Right. So um, we can start thinking about what some of the impacts would be for that. If we, I mean, food crops is a really nice example. If you've got only one kind of potato and climate conditions change or a new kind of disease emerges, then the whole species could be at risk. But if you've got a lot of genetic diversity, then, you know, you've got a higher chance that some variants might be resistant to disease or might be well suited to the new conditions. So you're basically keeping open the options for life. And I was, um, I read that the ecosystem change that's due to human activity has been more rapid in the past 50 years than any time before in human history. And so does that kind of give us some idea of how much we're changing? Yes. And again, I think, I mean, we are looking at a really long downward trend um, in populations Mm -hmm. and in the kind of the quality. I mean, we see lots of ecosystem degradation as well. Absolutely. And is there the second part of the biodiversity looks at uh, function diversity, is that correct? Mm, And the idea that that you'll have changes in population abundance as a result of human impact. So does that function diversity and the the genetic diversity, they go together to form the idea of biosphere integrity, is that right? Yes, very much so. So I mean, I think the extinction story alone lets us answer the simple planetary boundaries question. Are we in a Holocene-like state? No, we are making extinctions like nothing that has happened in the Holocene. But that isn't quite enough if we actually want to use the planetary boundaries framework in practical terms. So that's where the sort of, in a sense, that's where the functional diversity comes in. And so functional diversity is about what organisms do in their ecosystem rather than what they carry with them to the next generation. There's a lot of debate around this in the scientific community about functional types and functional traits and the relationship, as you were sort of just saying earlier, the relationship of ecosystem functioning to the actual living beings that there are in that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so this is in some ways, it's a more conceptual scientific 
concept if you can have a conceptual concept (laughs) when the idea first appeared it was really about identifying the right the range of of strategies that a species might have for exploiting its ecosystem but the idea is just getting very broad now sort of to a whole load of questions what roles do species have for the ways that ecosystems function so one one really clear example that might have been in the news quite a lot recently is people talk a lot about pollinators and mm-hmm. you know actually in the real world a huge number of different organisms can do the function of pollinating plants so you can have right. butterflies and bees and monkeys and actually people as well oh, so wow. um i know isn't that cool there's some <laughs> stuff on very very expensive vanilla <laughs> where pollinating the vanilla flowers is a is a very important social and cultural task for the people in that community. Oh, that's so, fascinating. I um I think we're kind of coming towards the end of our chat and so the last question I'd like to ask you is when I talk with people about environmental degradation and environmental change a lot of people come back to me and say well yes this is all fine and good however the main thing we need to look at is population Mm -hmm. and if we didn't have so many people on the planet we could continue as we are so why don't we focus on managing population growth rather than on all these other things what would you say in response to that oh it's such a difficult one because we can't choose who to cull can we (laughs) The planetary boundaries framework itself doesn't really say anything at all about people, apart from the observation that human activities are pushing the planet out of the Holocene safe operating space. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, yeah, to some extent, the more people that are actually doing those activities, the more serious the risk is going to be. But it actually is not a linear change. And I'm going to just explain what I mean by that. And in a linear change, we're talking about... Um, basically a system that we can push as if we could plot it on a on an xy graph if we push a control variable along one unit then the response variable will go up as well or down in a particular thing but if we're we're actually talking about really much more complex change and i think the population story is a complex one too yes lots of people tend to mean that we've got lots of risk but we actually can't just get rid of people overnight. So this is a social justice and an environmental justice issue, not just a planetary optimization issue. James Lovelock, who is one of the the founders of the Gaia concept, wrote in one of his books, I'm paraphrasing him a little bit, something like, yes, planet Earth is perfectly capable of supporting 10 billion people, just not these people. So there's something (laughs) about the fact, I know it makes me laugh even now, that it's about the overconsumption of a very relatively small proportion of the world's people that actually is, and the historic overconsumption and extraction of resources without any attention to the pollution consequences that is really the problem. So in a way, that kind of takes us a little bit back to where we started, that you know, when we're talking about a safe space for humanity, we really want many of us argue that we really want a safe and just world for humanity, which basically means that everybody who has the resources to do so should be focusing on reducing their climate pressure and on conserving and restoring living nature, making this a livable world for everybody. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. It's been really enjoyable. Right. We're back. 
Ooh, that was kind of sciencey for my brain, but mm. still pretty cool. Yeah. What were your main takeaways, though? I was like, this is a test, <laughs> <laughs> like an exam. Well, from what I understood, and correct me if I'm wrong, they're like uh, two... correct. <laughs> That doesn't work. You're going to have to do it again because I said aren't correct instead of aren't incorrect. <laughs> so if I understood it correctly, there are two main things that are really worrying in terms of environmental issues, which is climate change and loss of biodiversity. Exactly. Correct. Yes. Five stars, Thank which is what you. people are going to be rating the podcast after they listen to this. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And one thing that intrigues me is that I feel that climate change gets much more face time than biodiversity loss. Totally. Even I mean, every now and then you'll see a little blurb about bees. But <laughs> um, I, I wonder why, because to me it seems biodiversity is much more tangible. Yeah, because it's something that you can actually, you can see through the destruction of the rainforest, through the way that pollution is impacting animals washing mm -hmm. up on beaches. Like, it has a much more visual impact, mm -hmm. I think. I honestly don't know what the answer to that is, but I also know that we're guilty of it. Throughout the journey in this podcast, we automatically revert back to talking about climate change mm. as the major environmental change. And obviously there are many others, well, nine major ones here. Mm, but hopefully that's something we can explore further, maybe in a potential second season. Absolutely. What did you think about her comment on population? So overpopulation is one of the usual suspects when you talk about almost any type of global issue, right? Right. And uh, I think for those of us who come from Western countries, maybe it's one of the things we revert to when we want to say, come on, it's not our fault. Exactly. I do feel like it's often an easy way to blame other people. And managing populations, I think, is something that's worth talking about in terms of not just environmental issues, but the way that that can impact women and their role in society. But there's definitely a wealth of evidence to suggest that blaming the climate change and many environmental challenges on the populations in developing countries is just inaccurate. And that is explored in our episode, Is It My Fault?, And this is, I mean, we also all know from the late Hans Rosling, professor in public health, that population growth has diminished over the past years, uh, even though, of course, I mean, the population will continue to grow, but at a slower rate than previously. Hmm. But that concludes our sciencey episode. Please join us for other less sciencey episodes in the future. And please subscribe and let us know what you think on Instagram. You can find us at Bad Enviro Pod. And give us five stars. Bye. Bye.